This is a podcast from BBC Studios. BBC Studios. A commercial subsidiary. Commercial subsidiary. Of the BBC. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the BBC Earth podcast. The podcast that's taking a journey into the unknown. I'm Emily Knight. In this episode, we're pushing at the limits of our understanding. We're investigating mysteries in the natural world and finding out how much there is out there that we just don't know. Our first mystery is one that's been baffling travellers for centuries. Marco Polo thought it was spirits of the desert. Charles Darwin wrote about a bellowing hill in Chile. And in Michigan, it's said to be the mournful singing of a woman to her drowned lover. Sometimes, when the weather and the wind is just right, the desert sings. My name is Melanie Hunt. I'm a professor in mechanical engineering at Caltech. Melanie's thing is fluid mechanics. She studies how things flow. Not just liquids, but gases and powders too. Powder is perhaps the most complex of them all. At the time, I was looking at toner, flows of toner. So in a high-speed printing process, you're actually moving this toner very quickly. And one of the issues with the toner is that uh, it could melt. One day, some of Melanie's students surprised her with a gift. A gift from the desert. From where I'm at at Caltech, the closest place is about three hours. And these students had been out there. They had slid down the dune. They thought it was a great experience and brought me back a jar of sand. You know, I do get gifts from students sometimes. That was the first time anyone had given me a gift of, of a jar of sand. <laughs> the sand was from Dumont Dunes, one of many deserts in the world that are known to make deep, mysterious, reverberating noises. I've got two jars with me right now. If you shake the sand, it makes this funny sound, what we call a burping sound. I'm trying to do it in front of the microphone here. Melanie became fascinated by the mystery of why these sounds burped in her jar. So she gathered a team of students and headed out to the desert dunes. There's not much else out there, um, pretty barren. It's an area where I think they'd say it's a dry lake bed. And so you have kind of mountains on the side and then this kind of valley. And it's just in certain locations you'll suddenly see, you know, just this desert floor and then these very large sand dunes. Even walking on the singing sands is a musical experience. Most of the time when we went out, it would be hot. We were not in a place to really wait around until the wind was right. And so we would try to trigger an avalanche of sand. And the way you just do it is you get, get a bunch of students. We start at the top and you just slide down. With science by the seat of our pants. And it starts making a sound that sounds maybe like a low-flying propeller airplane. And you can actually feel the vibrations. 
that kind of started us in a long process of trying to understand what was causing it. The frequencies that we'd get when we would generate these avalanches or when we'd hear it naturally, it's from about 80 hertz up to about 100 hertz. And an instrument that generates frequencies in that range, you need something like a cello. You need a big instrument. They began with some very basic tests. What we'd do is we'd take a metal plate and a big hammer, and we'd pound the plate at the top of the dune, and we could look at how fast then that signal traveled down the dune, and what you realize is that it travels really, really slowly. Then moved on to more complex tasks. And then we began collaborating with some of my colleagues in geophysics at Caltech, uh, and they had equipment that was really used for, for seismic testing, trying to understand earthquakes and the nature of earthquakes, but it was the, the right kind of equipment for what we needed to do in terms of making better measurements on the dune, trying to understand the sound and, and how the sound propagates through the dune. Measuring the wave speeds and sonic frequencies moving through the dunes got Melanie thinking about her daughter's cello. Thinking about the size and what range of frequencies can be generated by these musical instruments really kind of helped think about, you know, we need something of some length that contributes to generating this sound that is in that kind of cello range. If I can take an image of this dune, what does it look underneath this, this upper layer? Is there some structure to this dune? And so that's one of the series of measurements that we make was trying to understand the structure. Melanie discovered that it was the structure of the dunes that held the key. From the images that we could take using the ground-penetrating radar, what we could see is that, that the dune really has a structure where during the winter months it will rain, um, but that it dries out and that the dry layer at the top is maybe about a meter and a half in depth. And further down, it never dries out, and so it gets harder and the sand itself actually kind of seems to start cementing itself together. Loose grains of sand, moved by the wind or by Melanie's students, moves across the surface of the dune like a cello's bow being drawn across the strings. And the packed dry sand underneath acts like a resonance chamber, amplifying the sound. It explains why it doesn't happen everywhere, that n not everywhere has this kind of same dune structure. You really need this very dry dune um, to get this low-speed propagation through this sand. And you need to have a dune of a certain size so that you can get this layer that's long enough so that the wave can reverberate through this layer so that you can hear it. And it all kind of seemed to fit together in terms of why it's happening and how we can explain where this sound comes from. My husband loves to sing. Uh, my daughters like to sing. When I was doing a lot of this work, I had a daughter who was playing the cello and a daughter who was playing the viola. I would record their playing and use it as a comparison against uh, some of the sounds that we'd hear from the, the dunes. It's just hearing nature and trying to understand what it is and, and connect it back to other things that we think about. The natural world is an almost infinitely mysterious place. There's still heaps of stuff that we don't know about. We know the common and conspicuous and loud and obvious things, but once we start looking very hard at all, we start discovering there's heaps that we don't know. 
Solving mysteries in the natural world is often the work of scientists, scientists like Melanie or like Bill Lawrence. Bill Lawrence is my name and my title is Distinguished Professor at James Cook University. Our next story is about a quest to catch a glimpse of an animal that some swear is out there, but that most think is nothing more than a myth. But it's not a Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster. It's an animal that used to roam freely over Australia and Tasmania, but that went extinct in the 1930s. It's called the thylacine, or the Tasmanian tiger. It was a marsupial that looked a lot more like a wolf. Very conspicuous, distinctive stripes on the rear flanks and into the lower back. They could open their jaw to an amazing length. It actually hinges further back on their skull. So they can almost open their jaw to 180 degrees. So you just imagine a big predator with this gigantic gaping mouth that disappeared from the mainland Australia roughly 3,000 years ago, but persisted in Tasmania, hence the name Tasmanian tiger. It was hunted mercilessly, and then the last one died in the Hobart, Tasmania Zoo, again, in the early 1930s. You can watch the footage of the last Tasmanian tiger on the internet. He was called Ben. In the grainy black-and-white 1930s film, he paces in his cage, stretches that enormous jaw in a yawn, tears apart a bone thrown to him by a keeper. Watching the film is a profoundly sad experience, knowing what no one knew back then, that he was the last of a species we'll never see again. Or was he? The thing is, people keep seeing tigers. All sorts of people. They ranged right across the spectrum, from sort of mainstream biologists and scientists, right out to people that are looking for UFOs and Loch Ness monsters and things. We're entering a world of shaky camera phone footage, blurry photos in the half-light of dusk, farmers on remote ranches swearing they know what they saw. Could these ancient predators have survived? In small pockets, well out of sight of humans? In 2017, Bill and his team heard a few reports that sounded more credible than usual. Reports from park rangers, who said they'd spotted thylacines back in the 80s, not in Tasmania, but in the far northern point of Australia in the huge expanse of untouched forest and open wilderness on the Cape York Peninsula. There had been plans for a large-scale survey of the wildlife there, but now the focus shifted. The hunt for thylacines was on. We were using more than 100 high-tech automatic cameras, and we got up into some really remote areas, we helicoptered into some sites. Naturally, it garnered an enormous amount of interest, and so we had literally dozens of different TV crews that wanted to come with us and and other media groups. But, you know, guess what? After taking more than 100,000 photos, we ended up with no evidence, no compelling evidence, that there was anything like a thylacine. There's been some people that have actually, you know, dedicated substantial chunks of their life particularly in Tasmania, but also in some southern areas of Australia, to going out and finding thylacines. And, and I like the notion that there are people out there who are trying to find these weird and wonderful creatures. And in some cases, you know, they've actually been discovered. Bill found no trace of Tasmanian tigers. And perhaps you're not surprised. Perhaps you're thinking that this was nothing more than a wild goose chase, with no more chance for success than the hunt for the abominable snowman. But perhaps you should put your scepticism on hold, just for a second. 
Because the extraordinary thing is, finding a species alive and well in the wild, long after science has given them up for extinct, actually does happen. There's a term for them. Lazarus species. Well, in the Bible, I guess it was Lazarus that sort of arose after dying. And so a Lazarus species is a species that's been declared officially extinct. And then, lo and behold, it's rediscovered. The mountain pygmy possum would be a famous example in Australia. It's this beautiful little possum that lives up in alpine areas. I think it was thought to have been extinct for about a century, and yet it was rediscovered. The Laotian rock rat was a member of a family of rodents that was thought to have disappeared 30 million years ago. So there's a whole family of, of, of mammals running around the earth that we don't know about. The coelacanth, of course, is a very famous thing, the giant lungfish. That was thought to have disappeared around the time that the dinosaurs vanished, and it was rediscovered in the Indian Ocean. There's too big a list of these Lazarus species that have been rediscovered to make any kind of statements like, you know, something's definitely gone. I guess it says never say never. With so many animals living their whole lives just out of sight, just beyond the reaches of our knowledge, is it any wonder that people still hold out hope for the return of the Tasmanian tiger? Is it any wonder people are still looking for Bigfoot? Is that really so outlandish? I mean, there was very interesting genetic evidence uh, up in Tibet. People had collected samples of things that they claimed to have been, you know, like the abominable snowman. Mainstream scientists at the University of Oxford got the genetic data, and it turned out to have been something that was most closely related to a species of bear that disappeared from Europe more than 50,000 years ago. So there's some weird stuff happening up in the remote Himalayas that we don't understand very well and and some of these you know observations of giant whatever they are may have some basis of you know there may actually be some big animal living up there we love a mystery and i think we've also all got a little bit of that conspiracy theorist in us we like to think that there's things that we haven't discovered yet or things that we don't know and the truth is is it, it happens so often if the mountains of Tibet can hide a whole new species of bear, maybe, just maybe, Lonely Ben wasn't the last Tasmanian tiger the world has ever seen. We're just tripping over new species all the time. You know, this notion that we kind of have most of the Earth well-described is not true at all. You're listening to the BBC Earth podcast, where we're probing what we think we know about the natural world and finding there's a lot of mysteries out there. Really good science, fun science, starts off with somebody, even a little kid, asking a simple question like, Papa, how can a tree grow out of bare rock? Once the question is let out of the bag, then there can, there can be, uh, in successful circumstances, a, a flurry of sub-questions that lead to an entire, in my case, a whole scientific career. I'm Doug Larson. I'm an emeritus professor in the Department of Integrative Biology at the University of Guelph. When I was a kid, my parents, uh, who grew up uh, during the Depression, didn't know how to interpret the interests of a kid who wanted to do natural history stuff. So they just assumed that I was going to be a doctor. And I hated the thought. As a result, when I got to university, I didn't do well in the courses like histology and, uh, and so on. But I did do well in ecology courses, and uh, there was a, a, 
fellow who had just come from the UK, starting his job at, at the McMaster University. And he said, I was wasting my time trying to follow my parents' dreams and suggested I just create a path of my own. And he was, he was a world-renowned lichenologist. He studied lichens for a living. And I followed him up to the coast of Hudson Bay to look at uh, the ecology of lichens along the coast of Hudson Bay. The most interesting thing about those plants is that they basically are things that live on rock. And when I finally graduated with my doctorate, I tried to find other places in Ontario where there were things living on rocks. And for the first 10 years, uh, those were lichens and bryophytes, mosses. Uh, finally, about 1988, uh, the Federal Granting Council told me that I was wasting my time studying rock scum, as they called it. And would I please, if I wish to have any continued funding, switch to something else? I had a student who had noticed um, cedar trees growing on cliffs of what we call the Niagara Escarpment. It's a, it's a series of limestone cliffs that basically runs from Niagara Falls in the south through to the tip of, of Manitoulin Island in the north. And uh, I assembled a team of people to look at the ecology of the cliffs I actually approached the Ontario government to see if, if they would like any work done there. And they said, no, no, there's no point because, after all, the cliffs are bare. But we knew that the cliffs from one end of the escarpment to the other, which is about 700 kilometers, were not bare, even though the government had considered them bare. It's mainly because they hadn't been looked at. An escarpment-like surface is, is something that you look at from a distance, but people rarely have the nerve to climb down the cliff face to see what's actually there. So Doug and his team took a look at these tiny, scrubby cedar trees, growing against all the odds out of the vertical rock face. They wanted to see how well they were coping with this harsh environment. So they took some samples. And with this uh, almost biopsy sample taken through the, the, the base of the tree, you can find out how old it is because you can count the rings. We had expected the trees to be generally 50, 60, 70 years old. And within the first week of sampling the trees, some of them looked like they could be as old as 700 years. And <laughs> this is the funny part. Be because I had experience with lichens, I didn't actually trust my ability to count tree rings. It's something that kids do as, uh, you know, as their parents encourage. But I, I, I was unsure that we were really looking at old trees. So they sent some samples off to a leading tree-aging laboratory who confirmed that indeed, these really were old trees, centuries old. We wrote it up for publication, and the next thing we knew, we had discovered the existence of an ancient forest. Millions of people had, had seen this habitat, but nobody had realized that this was a habitat that hadn't been disturbed at all since deglaciation. It turns out that rough, vertical cliff face above a busy highway was not such a harsh environment after all. The forest that was on these cliffs was essentially the same forest that had colonized about 10,000 years ago. And the trees don't view the cliffs as anything but paradise. Any plant needs a space for its roots to go, a source of nutrients and a source of water. And then what it needs is a list of things to avoid. It needs to avoid predators. It needs to avoid fire. These days, it needs to avoid people. The biggest risk is that the rock itself, over geological time, will fragment and fall off. And of course, because they have these roots that, that allow 
part of the plant to, to die, but the rest of it to live, means that even Rockfall doesn't represent a serious threat. There's no great virtue as far as the trees are concerned in getting big. Uh, a small, happy, little old tree doesn't know that it's small. It, it, it's a bit like a chihuahua. A chihuahua doesn't know how small it is. <laughs> All scientists live their lives to make a discovery. And when we found the existence of these ancient trees, which were obviously self-replacing, because they were not just old trees, but they were seedlings and seeds and middle-aged ones as well, was so thrilling that for the first four or five days, uh, I couldn't sleep. The trees are successful, even though they don't ask for much. In Canada, there seems to be this lust for money, for big houses, for big, 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 more, 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 and what the trees have taught me is that slow and, and patient and non-aggressive uh, existence is just as rich and fulfilling as the opposite. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode has been all about the things we don't know and about the people who make it their life's work to get the answers. But with the natural world, sometimes the answers to our questions are not so easy to find. The secret comings and goings of animals in the wild are hard for us to even see, let alone understand. Our next story is about what it takes to get inside a world that's very different from our own. About a man who dedicated himself, entirely and completely, for months on end, to really understanding one species. I am uh, Bruno D'Amicis. I am an Italian biologist and uh, wildlife photographer and author. I live uh, in the heart of uh, Italy, in the Abruzzi Mountains. Among all the projects that I tackled, the one that really changed my life and my mindset was with the local wolf population here in the Apennine Mountains of central Italy. I didn't see them when I was a child, but I remember all the stories, I remember the excitement coming from finding their tracks in the snow or finding a scat along a trail in, uh, while walking. I really wanted to feel again the emotion and the excitement of the early days when I was a child just going out with my little camera and uh, expecting the unexpected. The first time I heard them howling, I was probably 12 or 13, and I still remember it in, in my body, that, that uh, sounds, that echoes and resounds everywhere in your body when you hear it. 
wolves live in the mountains, which means covering extensive terrain and carrying every, all you need in your backpack. Sometimes I would need to sleep out in the mountains, in a tent or in a cave, in order to be ready for sunrise. The goal is always to find a fixed spot on the map which wolves are using for a while. This could either be a kill or in summer it could have been the rendezvous site, the place where the wolf pups wait for the adults to return from the hunt and bring them food. Rendezvous sites are very special. They are traditional, somehow the best kept secret of a family of wolves. And by finding one of these rendezvous sites, you have both a unique chance of documenting the life of the pups and maybe the interaction between adults and juveniles, but also you have a huge responsibility because wolves are very sensitive in these areas, so you don't want to disturb them. So I would just sit in one of these places, most of the time reaching them at night without headlamp, walking very softly, keeping myself as unobtrusive as possible, moving very little under a camouflage blanket and just sit for maybe six, eight, ten hours and try to become like a mushroom or a piece of bark. My only tool was time to really justify hours, if not days, sitting under a tree, looking at nothing and waiting for something to reveal. Most of the time, I didn't see any single animal passing anywhere. But slowly, of course, you learn, you put together pieces, you find patterns. And this is the most fascinating part of my job. Well, wolves spread their presence everywhere in the environment. It's either in the eyes of a deer, alert, or in a scat left on the side of the trail, full of the hairs of a wild boar they fed upon. It's in a line of tracks in the snow, it's in a distant howl, but also it's in the call of the raven feasting on a wolf kill hidden in the bushes, or it's in a dog barking at night constantly towards a certain rock on the mountain slope. So you learn to put together pieces which apparently have nothing to do with each other, and you see that there are connections somehow you manage to succeed in predicting the movements of the animals. And that eventually leads to a successful encounter and pictures that, believe me, this is the most rewarding moment of my whole experience. So the Italian wolves, they have uh, the strong neck, they have this very large feet and this beautiful glance. They have this unique tilted eyes, like amber colored. When a wolf is staring at you, it is the most incredible exchange of uh, glances that you can imagine with the wild animals in Europe. They are really intense. They are beautiful when they move in the landscape because they seem not to put any effort in walking. They seem to swim uh, on the landscape rather than, than run. In 2012 and 2000. 13, I followed the same family over the summer months for almost 20 full days per month. And uh, I knew each single pup, which one was leading, which one was curious, which one was lazy. One pup 
was relatively smaller than the brothers and sisters, but very curious, very bold. This wolf came once to nibble at my boots as I was sitting under my camouflage blanket, and I had to keep myself completely motionless, not to scare it off, and that was really, really a close contact. And it was pulling the strings of my boots. But what gave me goosebumps is that I realized that other two of the pups from that litter were just behind me, staring at me in that moment. Something in my genes stirred, some kind of prey memory was like, this is not cool, you know? <laughs> and uh, so I decided to stay put and nothing happened. And uh, actually that fact never happened again. So it was a thing once in a lifetime experience. From wolves, I learned to look at my mountains and the landscape in a completely different way. I learned to move more swiftly, to walk softly, to be very patient. I learned to appreciate the movement of clouds. I became definitely more aware of my surroundings. And now my experiences in the mountains are completely different. I kind of lost the kind of dogmatic vision of a scientist that pretends to know everything. I'm more prone now to accept mystery in nature and to appreciate the unknown and the fact that some questions will never have uh, answers. You've been listening to the BBC Earth podcast. Stories were produced by me, Emily Knight and Eliza Lomas. Next week, we'll be looking at some of the weird and wonderful ways animals adapt to survive and thrive in whatever the world throws at them. And if you can't wait that long, sign up to our newsletter for a dose of animals, nature and science from BBC Earth right now at bbcearth.com slash newsletter. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.